Buddhist cosmology, there are said to meet to be different levels of existence or different areas, domains of existence. And these domains of existence include animal realms and demon realms, hell realms, um, hungry ghost realms, human realms, uh, heavenly realms, what are called deva realms, jealous god realms. Uh, That's about it. Oh, human realm, if I didn't mention that, these different domains of existence. And whether they're actually true, don't ask me, in terms of (laughs) the actual reality of these different planes. But what we all do know and can know for ourselves is that we all live in different realms of existence from moment to moment. And we live in different realms of existence, more moments than others sometimes. So this is something we can know for ourselves. Sometimes the mind is very sleepy and, and very, uh, very droopy, and you could say maybe that's an animal realm for the moment, or you could say that there's a heavenly sense, a blissful moment once in a while, or, or many moments, and you could say that that's a, the, del- the deva realm for a little bit of time. But what I'd like to talk about tonight is the realm of the hungry ghost, the hungry ghost realm. And in a way, if I gave this talk a title, it would be transformation of hungry ghost mind into contentment. (laughs) The hungry ghost domain, the state of mind that is personified by this appearance of the hungry ghost, is a sense or a feeling of want, of lack, of yearning, of longing, of deprivation, feeling that one doesn't have enough. However much one does have, it's not enough. One feels very needy, very yearning for something, something, sometimes not even knowing what one is yearning for. The actual description of this particular being, hungry ghost being, is that of a being having a very, very big body, like a pot belly, and a very, very tiny mouth, as in a pin mouth. (laughs) A mouth that only a pin could pass through. So, here's this big belly that needs to be filled, that really needs food of some sort, needs something, And this very tiny mouth, this very pin mouth, so that whatever one is taking in, it's not enough. Inherent in the description is that there is never enough taken in. And I'm describing this realm because it is a state of mind that perhaps we come in contact with on retreat. (laughs) It may very well be happening in a vivid way in our daily lives, but oftentimes we're so busy that we don't even see it. We have some sense, and perhaps that's one reason among many that we're here, but oftentimes we're so busy with doing, with becoming, with getting, that 
we don't have a clear and vivid sense of this yearning, this sense of deprivation. And we do get much more of a vivid sense being here on retreat. So there's a sense in this realm of feeling impoverished, a sense of hunger, a sense of thirst, of of yearning, of wanting, of restlessness, of itchiness. There is the hunger for some sense of relief, some sense of satisfaction. And we find ourselves reaching out time after time again, reaching out for something to be filled up by, and time after time again finding ourselves disappointed. It's not what it appeared to be. It's not what we thought it would be. Some kind of glimpse or idea about abundance or about fulfillment. And then we get up close and we see, ah, it was just a mirage. The actuality is not what one imagined it could be. And yet the yearning is still there. The yearning is very deep. The yearning is very strong. As long as we are fastened onto this, clinging to this hungry ghost personification or mirage, inherently there is going to be need. Inherently there is going to be lack. And so the first way to move away from this image and into the actuality of contentment is really through recognition. The first step is through the recognition of yearning, of longing, of not covering it up in the usual ways, by the usual things, by the usual efforts, but really to let go and to surrender to simply feeling this yearning, simply being aware of the raw and often poignant sense of craving, of need. We may search in our everyday lives. We may search for refuge. We may search for fulfillment. We may search to be filled up by a variety of different situations in our life. We may feel a certain way and try to go to a movie to move away from it. We may feel a certain way and reach for food to try and not feel it because it's quite painful and it's quite poignant. So we may try over and over again to move away from it, to fill ourselves up. We may try to find refuge or fulfillment in our relationships. We may try to find refuge in sleep. This is often an interesting one to see on retreat, is the refuge that we try to find in sleep. We may try to find refuge We may try to find fulfillment through approval in our life, through trying to get enough praise, trying to get enough approval from others so that just for a moment we can feel full, we can feel fulfilled, we can have some sense of satisfaction. And of course, we very much try to find refuge in our fantasies. 
we try to find refuge in our memories, particularly on retreat perhaps, when there aren't the movies and, and other, other things to be absorbed in, we may try to find refuge within the plans that we make for when we leave here, what we'll do. A painful moment, a poignant moment, a raw moment, and the mind moves into plans, into ideas about what may happen, what could happen, what should happen. And it's a movement away from this sense of rawness, this sense of knowingness, of yearning. On retreat, we may try to seek refuge, refuge through the thought that the retreat is only a certain amount of days until it's <laughs> over. We may try to find refuge over and over again in that thought, like a prisoner that is putting X's on the, on the wall. I only have this many days left, and, and then, you know, and then the mind moves into fantasies and, and ideas of anything, any sense of relief. And truly, it's a way that we try to find a sense of relief or a sense of refuge. It's very much a concept, the number of days that are, are so-called left, because all we have, of course, is this moment happening right now. But somehow, it, it seems to help us a bit to, to just for a second not have to feel the, the, um, the pain. We can also, in any given sitting, try to find relief or refuge through thinking how many minutes are left in the sitting. I have this amount of time left. And somehow, just for a second, there's a degree of comfort. You know, a degree. Because, of course, we all know that five minutes can feel like five hours. And that five hours can feel like five minutes. But we delude ourselves thinking that there's some sense of, del- of relief. And we can find comfort in everything I just mentioned. We can find some degree of comfort and relief from our relationships that may be nourishing in various ways that can be very much happiness-producing. We can find a little bit of a break from going to a movie or, or watching TV or whatever we might do or talking on the phone to someone. We might find a little bit of relief or a break through eating or, or through having the thought of how many days are left or whatever. You know, it's true. It's not, it's not false. It's true. But it is a false sense of comfort, of true comfort. It is what we could call a false refuge because it's so impermanent. It just doesn't last, whether it's a thought or a movie or a person that we find is not saying what we want them to say to us. Whatever it is, something goes wrong. Something is off. There's some degree of impermanence or change that we are constantly finding. And so when we look for these various things, these various objects or various situations, whether it is the actuality of a relationship or a movie or food, or if it's as subtle as a thought or a plan or a memory, what we are actually doing, not by enjoying our life, enjoying our relationships or food or movies or whatever, but what we are doing by thinking we can find a lasting happiness or a deep 
refuge or a true sense of contentment or comfort in looking outside of ourselves, in the impermanent, what we are actually doing is feeding this hungry ghost. And of course, if you can remember the image of the hungry ghost, you can feed the hungry ghost as long as one wants, and it will still not get enough food. So immediately, we're caught. We're perpetuating the realm of the hungry ghost where we're staying longer on that realm than need be through trying to feed the hungry ghost because it just doesn't work. Actually, a better way to to work with a hungry ghost is to be kind and gentle and not judge the yearning, not judge the poignancy of the pain that we're feeling, but to be quite compassionate towards this state of mind that is occurring. So rather than judging and condemning the state of mind of yearning, of need, and instead of feeding, these are the two things This is what we don't want to do. We don't want to feed because it doesn't work. And at the same time, we don't want to condemn or judge or hate the hungry ghost. It is truly just a state of mind. So the second thing that we want to do is to disidentify with this state of mind. The first is to recognize its presence because if we don't recognize its presence as a state of mind, then Always we're seeking for something outside of ourselves. Always there is a dream. Always there is some sense that it's just out of our reach. And we're stuck in an if-only mind. If only things were different. If only I were in the perfect relationship. If only I could eat as much as I wanted without it being a problem. If only movies were endless. If if only. And we're caught and stuck on that level of reality. If we're caught in this, we can never really recognize how things are, the true state of the heart. And only when we recognize the true state of the heart, only when we recognize this particular realm within us that I think all of us can see at some point in some way or another, or to some degree or another, only when we recognize this can we begin to actually allow the hungry ghost realm to disappear. It's not a matter of cutting it down. It's not a matter of condemning or judging. And it's not a matter of feeding and trying to get satisfaction from outside. But without recognition, we also don't see where to look. We may have some sense that deep contentment is possible. This may be our deep aspiration. And yet, there may be also great frustration in knowing where to look. So the recognition is absolutely essential because we can begin to not look where it can't be found. And that is a big thing. That in of itself is a big deal if we begin to see the fragility of the various areas in which we try to find happiness or lasting fulfillment. So again, 
It is not being said that there isn't some degree of comfort that can be found in the various refuges I mentioned. It's just that it's not enough, and we know that. And we know that there can be something much deeper. We know that true contentment may indeed be possible if we look in the right place. The second step, as I said, is non-identification. Recognizing that this is a momentary appearance. We're all such hard workers, and we can get the idea that this is something we need to work on. You know, here's this state of mind, and we need to work on it to get rid of it. We use those words a lot. And actually, you know, this, this comes from the sophistication, I think, in this very psychological culture, which benefits us to a great degree, to have the level of sophistication that we have. And the meditative path is, is different, is a bit different, because we're not so much working on what we see. Now we see lack, now we see hungry ghost mind, and we have to work on it to get rid of it. You know, to get out of it, to get rid of it, to improve ourselves, to become non-hungry ghost beings, because it doesn't sound like a great thing to be a hungry ghost. <laughs> when actually, it's really just hungry ghost manifestation appearing. Hungry ghost manifestation not appearing. And we can simply recognize this when it is present. We don't have to identify with it as being who I am as being what I am, as being who another person is. We can simply see and recognize this state of mind as appearing and disappearing. Here, present, may be very present for many different moments. Certain conditions coming together, and here it is. But again, there is no need to work on it. It's simply a matter of recognition. The recognition is a great part of our path the willingness to see, the willingness to open, the willingness to be with what is, with open-heartedness and grace. In our life, we can find ourselves reaching out in various ways, ways that may not be very healing at times. We can see ourselves reaching out in ways that may be healing at times because the path does open us up to ways in which we can heal, in which we can see that we have particular needs that we may have denied in the past. So we can open through our practice, to what our needs really may be. On retreat, sometimes we can get a little dose of what's called yogi mind, where we are very obsessed, very much engrossed in reaching out for something, whatever that may be, and losing the bigger picture, losing the larger picture at that point. Someone wrote a letter to... um, this good teacher, Tofu Roshi, that I would like to read to you. Just the letter part of it, the answer is not important. Dear Tofu Roshi, is there a gourmet guide to spiritual practice places? 
My wife and I need to know, in choosing our path, where we can get our dietary needs met. I have heard of Zen centers where peanut butter is the mainstay of every meal, but we are more interested in something in the Nouvelle Cuisine line. (laughs) When you give up all your ordinary activities, food becomes even more important than usual, and that's saying something. My wife and I wish to spend our summer vacation on a long retreat. I am overweight, and I hope to lose pounds but gain insights. (laughs) About 20 of each. My wife, who is very slim, is allergic to wheat and milk. I should perhaps add that neither of us is enthusiastic about the idea of eating seaweed, and we wonder if people have been able to get enlightened without it. (laughs) One more thing. Cooked carrots make me gag. What do you recommend for us? This is, this is an extreme. <laughs> and yet sometimes we get lost, we get caught, and we forget the bigger picture in getting engrossed in what we think we have to have to make us happy, in what is necessary for completion. And although our path does open us up to needs that we may not have even recognized before, at the same time, we can get caught and engrossed in needs that we hadn't even known that we, we had before. So, we can value contentment. This is a way to actually nurture contentment in our lives. We can incline the mind towards valuing a sense of being content. Hungry ghost realm or hungry ghost mind is very much conditioned by our environment. It's very much conditioned by the advertising in this culture. Hungry ghost mind is a wonderful thing economically. (laughs) Our whole economic system really is based on the perpetuation of hungry ghosts. It would really fall apart if everybody decided to be with the rawness or the sense of, of what is, rather than reaching out and trying to find something to complete ourselves from outside. So I think it's, it's really important, even for those of us who have lived lives of, of um, you know, what looks like alternative ways of life and are not as absorbed into the culture as the usual, which may be true for some of us or many of us here, Still, I think we all need to recognize the impact that the environment has on us and our level of sensitivity to advertising, our level of sensitivity to what it is that comes in, what it is that we're consuming through advertising, through the environment. A phone company in in, um, California had a particular way of advertising. What they said was, California, where good enough isn't. (laughs) Well, you know, that's about the most opposite of contentment that you can get. And yet, that was just a very blatant, honest statement. This is what the advertising is saying all the time. You're not good enough. Things aren't good enough. One needs this for a sense of completion or happiness or fulfillment. And it seems to me that one really needs to be aware of its impact on us. Because even if we may scoff at it and think that it doesn't apply to to us, 
At the same time, all of us are very sensitive and very open. And perhaps there are ways that we are perpetuating hungry ghost mind, perpetuating pain, perpetuating suffering that may not be necessary. So in a way, what is being asked of us on the path is to abandon the usual cultural values. And in order to do that, there must be recognition of what these values are, recognition of our sensitivity, recognition of the possible impact. We can examine the various mottos or the various belief systems that we may carry around with us. One may be aware of having a belief system of thinking that one can have one's cake and eat it too, that this is what is being promised to us in a certain way through the culture, that it is possible to have everything. And this is something that we may want to examine. I know personally I found out at a certain point that this was the belief system that I was going on, that it was possible to have everything, that it was possible to have my cake and eat it too. And it was a a wonderful sense of waking up to move to the model of you can't have everything without a sense at all of resignation or depression because that's not what's being meant at all. It is possible to have great freedom. It is possible to have great happiness. In the realm of form, one makes choices. And these choices are are what they are. In terms of form, one cannot have everything. When one has children, one misses out on other things. There's loss. One, One chooses not to have children. One misses out perhaps on the joy of having children. Choices are being made all the time, and they're fine. It's just the level of form. It's not even all that important. It's only the clinging. It's the clinging that hinders. It's the clinging that obstructs, is thinking that form is possible and that we can, in terms of form, that we can have all possible forms in our life. And this is a delusion that is put out in this particular culture and it leads to a great lack of deprivation, a great deprivation. It leads to a great lack of contentment. Whereas the practice is saying, can I accept and be where I am? Can I be with things as they are, with great fullness in this moment, with a sense of reality in this moment? Can I be with my life exactly as it is? I think sometimes as people get older, this is, this is what, what I hear, people say that this comes very naturally, this growing sense of contentment that one can't have everything. And people express it. If, if it doesn't come about through bitterness or resentment, people often express this with great delight, that it's one of the delights of getting older, that one does let go of thinking that one has to have certain things in order to be happy, and that there is a growing sense of expansion and maturity and contentment in letting go, in seeing that everything that we need 
is present for us in the here and now. That everything we could desire for lasting happiness and freedom is totally accessible and available to us only in this moment. Has nothing to do with form. Has nothing to do with ideas. Has everything to do with here and now. With this moment only. The Buddha once said that the entire teaching could be summed up with one statement and one statement only. And that statement being, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. That statement being, don't hang on to anything. So what is being said is that the source of contentment is within, is within spaciousness and expansion and openness within is through the cultivation of a mind, of a heart, that clings to nothing, that holds on to nothing. If we say it's something, then it has a birth and a death. So anything that we hang on to, there is bound to be some degree of disappointment connected to, whether it's a thing, an object, a situation, or whether it's a particular state of mind. Even if we're hanging on to happiness or, or uh, bliss, a moment of bliss, a deva-like, a heavenly-like state of mind, eventually disappointment is the result because it's something. We've made it into something. So in our practice, what we're doing that is of so much importance, of so much value in terms of lasting happiness for ourselves that we can and do expand onto others, is this cultivation of a mind that doesn't cling, this cultivation of a heart that clings to nothing, that is free and at ease in this moment. We don't have to work at this. We do have to practice, but we don't have to work at this. (laughs) It's available to us right now. It's simply a matter of seeing What are we holding on to? What are we fixating on? What do we think is so important in this moment? Because whenever we do this, we're taking a strand out of life and fixating on that one strand and making it everything. When life is what it is, it's whole. It's what it is from moment to moment. And it can't be caught. It can't be captured. We can't cling and make it into anything. Whenever we do, we're imprisoned in some way or another. We're cultivating a non-clinging mind through more and more awareness of openness, more and more awareness of inner spaciousness, of a true ease that we can be in contact with whenever we remember, which is the key, whenever we remember. when we're clinging to anything at all, it is not possible to touch the essence of life. It's not possible to touch what is when the mind is clouded and clinging to anything, anything at all. And contentment is found when we are in touch with the essence of life as it is. Essence of life 
being life expressing itself through whatever way, through a thought, through a bird singing, through the color of the rug, through looking in someone's eyes, through a breath, through an in-breath, through an out-breath, through a sense of knowing whatever it is that's happening. In other words, through a connection. Connection without clinging. Connection without attachment. Connection without making what it is that is happening into anything more or anything less than what is happening. So what is being talked about is an intimacy or a true connectedness with our life in this moment, which is, again, the only moment in which we can be connected. Everything else is plans and ideas, dreams about the past, memories. The only moment in which we can be connected to what is, is right now. There is a connection between hunger and contentment There is a connection between hungry ghost mind and contentment, which, of course, is the opposite of hungry ghost mind. When we are blindly reaching out because of hunger, when there is a compulsive reaching out, we may miss the serenity within. It's very easy to miss connection. It's very easy to miss tranquility and stillness and serenity inside when we are in a compulsive way trying to reach out to get away from this sense of poignancy. If we can stay with things as they are, whether it's hungry ghost mind or hell realm mind or deluded mind or or human mind or deva realm mind or jealous mind or angry mind or boredom mind or any kind of mind one can think of, Right then and there, we are reconnected and not lost. We are present with our life exactly as it is. When we are not clinging, when we are not clinging to the familiar, Buddha nature does shine through. It becomes accessible to us. The essence of life or Buddha mind, Buddha nature, that which is free from torment, that which is free from delusion, is very easy to see. It's right here. It's nowhere else. It's only being veiled or clouded over by our reaching out, thinking we need something for completion. When we reach in, when we stay with what is inside, we see that completion is already happening. It is already here. And it's only the reaching out away from that reifies a sense of deprivation, that reifies a sense of lack. As clinging is reduced, as attachment is reduced, an inner space opens. An inner space naturally opens in spite of ourselves. Always, I think, the practice is in spite of ourselves. But an inner space does open up. And this inner space is contentment. This inner space is the beginning of a true sense of refuge, a true sense of contentment.
When we are with whatever it is that is occurring in our life, when we are connected in the moment to our life as it is, we can be with what's happening with some degree of calmness. There is a capacity to look at life in a caring and a calm way. Even difficult situations, we find this is true for. Some months ago, very early in the morning, I was asleep, and I heard a crash in the kitchen. My bedroom is ways away from the kitchen. And my first thought was that I had just piled up the dish rack too high and that all the dishes had had crashed down. But it continued to happen. There were a lot of crashes in the kitchen, so I decided to go out there and see what was going on. And when I walked into the kitchen, there were lots of things around. There were eggs broken on the floor, and you know, it looked like there had been a whole bunch of people in there smashing things. And I saw this um, the squirrel in front of me, this very frightened looking, I can't say little, it was kind of a big squirrel. <laughs> I don't know how, how this squirrel got in, but it was sitting there looking quite, quite frightened. And so I opened up all the windows. There are two windows in the kitchen and they're pretty big. I opened them up really wide. I opened up all the doors. There's two doors, I opened them up really wide. And this squirrel was so agitated that it couldn't find the window. It couldn't find the door because it had squirrel mind. (laughs) The Buddha neglected to talk about um, squirrel realm, (laughs) hungry ghost realm, where there's squirrel mind too, squirrel realm too. And what I saw was that there was such a level of fear, there was such a level of agitation and anxiety that this squirrel could just not find the way out, could not find the door, could not find the window. And it was quite, quite, you know, quite something to, to see. It did actually take a while um, for the squirrel to be coaxed out the door. Um, but it was, you know, such a feeling of, of um, compassion, such a feeling of this poor little squirrel can't find its way home. Uh, and, you know, one could identify with this mind, too. We know what squirrel mind is like. When the mind is, is agitated, the window's right there, the fresh air is available, and yet there's no way we can find it because of agitation and anxiety and worry. We can also cultivate contentment, nurture contentment in our lives by a sense of gratefulness, by looking at what is not wrong in our situation. And I'm not at all speaking about any kind of Pollyanna positive thinking of trying to think in a certain way to make ourselves feel better when something actually is wrong. But at the same time, to nurture a sense of gratefulness and the capacity to look at what is right, at what is free already, at what is open and available to us. Simply that recognition. 
Because our society, because this culture is constantly saying something is wrong and you need this in order to fix it, oftentimes we are not able, I think, there is great conditioning to not be able to see that which is right. It's another form of conditioning in the mind. And of course, gratefulness is, is such, a, um, such a wonderful um, a wonderful sense in the heart, because in gratefulness there is a great sense of fullness, of something being quite fine, whatever it is. Let me read you something. It's called Suffering a Foot Injury. It was written by Uchiyami Roshi. If I had someone to care for me, if my parents were near, if I had money, I wouldn't have suffered. In my dust-covered room, laying on ragged quilts, recalling Job, I can bear this hard pain. I am grateful. People worry, what if I lose my savings? What if I become ill, lose my job? Always framing their thoughts, what if? They're afraid, though their fears are groundless. Though I'm ill, without savings or income, unable to eat, Even if I starved, I wouldn't think it strange. And just for that, I'm grateful. So in our practice, perhaps in refraining from looking for contentment in the wrong place, outside of ourselves, in looking for refuge in the impermanent, Perhaps we can see that we can find a contentment that is not dependent, that is independent, that is not dependent on situations, that is not dependent on comfort. That true comfort comes from within and can only come from within and is possible to find. Settling naturally into our lives is our practice. This is what we are doing from moment to moment, is settling naturally into our bodies, settling naturally into our minds, settling naturally into our emotions and thoughts and feelings. We are settling naturally into whatever life is offering in this moment. Whatever we meet is our life, is nothing other than our life. And what we can see is that contentment is in no other place than right here and right now. finish with a um, poem called Poem Without a Category. Trailing my stick, I go down to the garden edge, call to a monk to go out the pine gate, a cup of tea with my mother, looking at each other, enjoying our tea together. In the deep lanes, few people in sight. The dog barks when anyone comes or goes. Fall floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering our sandals, we wade the narrow stream. By the roadside, a small pavilion where there used to be a little hill. It helps out our hermit mood. 
country poems pile one sheet on another. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the stream, gaze at the flagging, admiring how firm the stones are. The point in life is to know what's enough. Why envy those other world immortals? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. Okay, why don't we sit for a moment or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.